0: Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. If you train to run a marathon, you slowly increase the distance that you run over a period of time. Over a period of weeks and months, you build up until just not that far out from the marathon, you do a 20-miler. I know this because I myself have read that on the Internet. (laughs) No, I have, honestly. They say that some of the training programs uh, don't run 26 miles until the day of the race. Reasons for that are different. Not to get injured. Not to get too depleted right before the race. Not to hit the wall when you're by yourself. Different reasons. It reminds me of what's happening in Revelation. In Revelation, there is a sense in which we've been over this ground before. This has happened since the time of John, since the time of Jesus. It continues to occur, and it will continue, but it will get more intense. Revelation indicates that things intensify, and there will be and there can be a tendency to hit the wall. But we're going to look at that today. Before we look at the section today, which is a robust and a challenging section, however, I'd like to put on the board what I think is the key lesson of the section we will consider today. And here it is, simply, as evil conspires to destroy humanity. God uses every crisis as a call to repentance. That is specifically for those who do not follow the Lamb. As evil conspires to destroy humanity, God is using every crisis along the way to call people to himself. The section we look at today can be divided into two, and I'm going to use the word Eugene Peterson uses to summarize these two sections. The first is the word prayer. This occurs in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. The second word is witness. This occurs in Revelation chapters 10 and 11. And so we begin on this side with our Scripture passage for today. Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 2, And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Prayer is the doorway into this section. But prayer not only looks forward, it also looks backward. Back under the unsealing of the seals, the breaking of the seals, seal number five, we heard the voices calling out from under the altar, how long, O God, how long until you give us justice? It is not until now that we see the altar again. And once again, it is connected to prayer. John is connecting these two realities for for those who are calling out to God for justice, who wonder how much longer it will be. John is saying God is hearing those prayers and God is answering. How do we know God is answering? Because when the angel hurls the censer with the prayers to earth, there are rumblings, peals of thunder, lightning, and an earthquake all of which are signs in the Old Testament of theophanies, those moments when God appears and when God acts. And so as the prayers are responded to on the earth, the theophany happens. God is coming to you. God is listening to your prayers. God is hearing your prayers. He is answering your prayers. That's so important for what's about to happen not only for the connection to the past, but what is going to come in the trumpets. We're going to hear the trumpets, six of them at first. And as we listen to these trumpets, the, the, the climate of the world, the aura of what's happening, will be so damaging, so frightening, so chaotic, and so deadly that we will need to have the assurance that God is hearing our prayers. Now, I wrestled all week pretty much with this, how much to read of what happens when the trumpets blare. I wrestle for two reasons. One, it's a lengthy section, but the other is because this is one of those sections for which we don't read Revelation. Frightening, filled with images that inspire fear rather than faith. But we're trying to be honest with Revelation. And so I want to give three or four background pieces, and then we're going to read sections of it. The first thing before we read that we need to recognize is that John is struggling for ways to communicate to his audience what he's seeing in vision. He's, he's trying to figure out words and illustrations and images and metaphors. That he can use to put in what is unimaginable into language that his hearers can understand. We know that because as we move through this section, he will use words like as, and like, and looked like, etc. So it looked like that, and it's kind of as this was, and well, it's like the other, and, and you can sense him. He's, he's not saying this is what it was, this is what it was like. He's trying to get a way to describe that in language his hearers can understand. And then he's using images from his day, images they would have understood, that would have made sense to them. He speaks of a locust, an invasion of locusts, a locust plague, as it were. Referring to back to Joel and what happened to Joel in the locust plague, and what happens, no doubt, in the world of John's listeners when the locusts sweep in and eat everything. He says it's kind of like that. And then he describes these, these warriors that come on horses. They're fearsome, and they're, they have long hair like women, and they're 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 the danger is in their tails. And what in the world are you saying, John? Almost certainly, he's drawing an image from the Parthians, Rome's decided enemy. They had defeated Rome's legions. They were from the east, excellent warriors, excellent horsemen. In at least one battle, the way they had defeated the Roman legion was they appeared to flee. And the Roman legion chased. And then because they were so good on horseback, they turned around and shooting over the tails of the horses, they sent their arrows to the defeat of the Roman legion. John seems to be drawing from that. And then 10, 12, 14 years before John put quill pen to parchment, there was a mountain, a volcano named Vesuvius, that erupted spewing fire and ash into the sky, darkening the sky, sending hundreds of thousands of tons of debris and ash and lava into the sea, covering Herculaneum and mud, destroying Pompeii. John seems to draw on that image. Use that language. He uses some terms from the Old Testament with which they would likely have been familiar to describe the destructiveness. So as we move through this passage, just remember how John is using language and the images on which he's drawing. And he's doing it for one reason. He's trying to communicate to them that the vision he sees is a vision that tells him that everything on which they depend for safety and security is going to be undone. All that you're depending on, the climate and environment, the military, a stable governmental system, whatever it is, it's going to be undone. And he uses images to describe that. Secondly, remember we said that in Revelation, numbers are often much more about theology than they are about math. There is here a term, a fraction he will use. It appears repeatedly, one-third. One-third. And our question is, why does one-third appear so much? Well, if numbers tend to be more about theology than math, then he's making a statement about that. Because amidst all the chaos and destruction, things will not be divided up neatly into one-thirds. He's saying something else. That number can symbolize who it is that's behind this. So those of you who have watched football and have watched maybe the New England Patriots or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who had a quarterback by the name of Tom Brady, the GOAT, greatest of all time, war number 12, Well, know what I mean. If you're a fan of either one of those teams or a fan of Brady and you have a friend that's cheering against him and the game is tight but toward the end the friend's team seems to be winning, I'm out, i got to go to work, and then your team wins. Brady pulls them out. And your friend calls you and he says, what happened? When I left there, we were winning. What happened? And you say, I'll tell you what happened. Number 12 happened. That's what happened. Number 12 happened. And you don't have to explain anything else. He gets it. Number 12 happened. Well, that's what John is doing here. So we have to ask, where is the key definition of one-third in Revelation? It happens in Revelation 12, the passage for next week. It is there that we discover that the mud-slinging slanderer, that great dragon, that serpent, with his tail drew one-third of the stars, one-third of the angels out of heaven. From the very presence of God, he was able to deceive them, one-third of them. That's the key place. So when you see one-third, just recognize John is likely saying, just remember who the source is. Number 12 did it. Just remember one-third, one-third, one-third. That will help us as we read. Recognize that there is an intensification as we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ. And then finally, recognize that the focus of the six trumpets is different than the focus of the six seals which we spoke of last week. They cover the same terrain, but with a different focus. So listen to Michael Wilcock as he writes about this. He says, In a word, the two scenes, he's meaning the seals and the trumpets, are parallel. The breaking open of the seals shows what will happen throughout history up to the return of Christ with particular reference to what the church will have to suffer. The trumpet, starting again from the same point and also declaring what will happen throughout history up to and including the return of Christ, proclaims a warning to the unbelieving world. So understand, last week, as we talked about the breaking of the seals, we had Matthew 24 in the background. To whom does Jesus speak in Matthew 24 if not to his own disciples? He's explaining to his disciples what is to come what to expect how to live in a state of readiness revelation that echoes that is speaking to the followers of the Lamb. however the six trumpets have a different focus and we'll see why in just a few moments their focus is for those who do not follow the lamb so that as evil conspires to destroy humanity god is using every crisis as a call To repentance. Now, it's kind of a mouthful, but with all of that in place, let's read. Fasten your seatbelts, it'll be a bumpy ride. Revelation 8, starting in verse 6, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. "'The first angel sounded his trumpet, "'and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, "'and it was hurled down on the earth. "'A third of the earth was burned up, "'a third of the trees were burned up, "'and all the green grass was burned up. "'The second angel sounded his trumpet, "'something like a huge mountain, "'all ablaze was thrown into the sea. "'A third of the sea turned to blood, "'a third of the living creatures in the sea died, "'and a third of the ships were destroyed.' The third angel sounded, a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the stars Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night, over and over. A third, a third, a third. Remember who's behind this. Don't believe the mud-slinging slanderer who causes all of the destruction and then keeps pointing heaven. Someone else is behind the catastrophic events. 9 verse 1, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke of a giant, gigantic furnace, The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who would not have the seal of God in their foreheads. The case can be very easily made that in the Old Testament Scriptures, those trees and other vegetation that flourish are the people of God. So it is as though John is saying here, understand, those of you who are following the Lamb, God has placed his hand of protection over you. But God loves them just as much. So he's using in every crisis, he's using a way, he's attempting to call them to himself. Back to Revelation. Curious here, verse 7, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle on their heads. They wore something like crowns of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And in their tails they had power to torment people for five months, meaning no doubt that there is a limited torment that is taking place. But notice under the sixth angel. I'll skip down to verse 17. "'The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths.'" The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads, no doubt with mouths, with which they inflict injury. Curious that as we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ, the chief weapon becomes the mouth, the mouth that is spewing destruction. It makes absolute sense. The mudslinging slanderer, is using his agents, their mouths. He's the father of lies, said Jesus. He was a liar from the beginning, and now at the very end, the chief weapon appears to be what's coming out of his mouth. But through all of this, God is still working to bring people to himself. I'll tell you why I say that. You'll remember that last week as we looked at the seals, in the background to the seals was Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and reading and understanding it helped us to understand the seals. There is something, a passage in the background to this passage that will also help us. It's Exodus 7 to 11. Moses, Pharaoh, and the plagues on Egypt. That's in the background of what's happening here and will happen a bit later in Revelation as well. Moses is sent to bring the people of God out of the land of their slavery into the promised land. It's the same reality here. God is about to bring his people out of this land of slavery to sin to the promised land. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord has said, let my people go. Pharaoh's immediate answer is, I don't know who the Lord is, and I'm not letting anyone go. And so plagues begin to plague Egypt. Understand that plague after plague, the point of the plagues is not to create damage or heartache for Pharaoh. It's to show Pharaoh that those gods of Egypt in which he trusted for safety, for security, for stability, for provision, didn't stand a chance with the true God. The Nile, for example, that's the river that we worship, it brings to Egypt its fertility. It is because of the Nile that we have fish. It is because of the Nile that we can grow crops. It is because of the Nile that we can slake our thirst. The Nile is our God. And in one moment, God says, "Uh Uh-uh, not more powerful than me. And one plague after another continues to show the same reality. Listen to... Craig Keener right about this. The sorts of judgment characterizing the judgments of the trumpets and bowls, those are yet to come, evoke especially the ten plagues of the Exodus, although they are numerically adjusted to seven. As in other Jewish texts, the sequence and even the number of the plagues is not important for the point of the image. In other words, don't get too caught up in the trees and miss the forest. The plagues of Egypt are in the background. Then listen to Eugene Peterson. The trumpet plagues reconstruct the Exodus plagues. The Exodus plagues were not punitive, that is for punishment, but purgative, that is for purging or cleansing. Sent not simply to make Pharaoh miserable, but to get him to change his mind, to repent. That purpose continues here in Revelation 8 and 9. Salvation comes from God and only from God. When we get complacent in Egyptian routines, God intervenes. Nothing is secure but God. No relationship is firm except in faith. So God is not trying to do Pharaoh in as his creation God is trying to get Pharaoh to understand that on which you depend is not ultimate. And I'm going to show you one at a time in the hopes that somewhere along this journey you will finally say, God, I see now. God's purpose is repentance. Now you may say to me, but Randy, Randy, Doesn't the text say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? That's pretty clear. You're right, it does. But the text also says, look at them all, not quite as often, but for several of them, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So you've got two accounts. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? It's an important question because we're not here in the trumpets really talking about Pharaoh, though that's in the background. We're talking about human hearts in the contemporary world. That's who we're talking about. So it becomes very important to understand how Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New, but especially in the Old, uses language. So consider the story of King Saul. King Saul saw David as his nemesis. You've read the story in 2 Samuel about the death of King Saul in battle against the Philistines. The Philistines were winning. They had wounded Saul. And in a shame and honor world, Saul said, I don't want my story to be told and it to be said that the Philistines killed me. I don't want that. That will be a shame to all of my name and my family. So he turns to his armor bearer and says, You kill me. The armor bearer says, No, 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 I'm, mm -mm, I'm out. I won't do that. And so the text says, Saul took his sword and fell on it, committing suicide. That's what the text says. A chapter or two later, an Amalekite shows up to David, who will soon become king, with the crown, the armband, the signet ring. He says, Saul, your enemy, your nemesis is dead. I killed him. He's expecting a reward. He should have known David. So there's a second accounting. Amalekite pays for it with his life. Certainly he's lying. But there's a third account, 1 Chronicles 10, 11 to 14, in which the writer of Chronicles says, tells the story of Saul's unfaithfulness, and then says, and because Saul was unfaithful, the Lord took his life. The Lord killed him. Okay, so did Saul do it? Did Amalekite do it? Did the Lord do it? We can toss the Amalekite out, but it's either Saul or the Lord. It gives us an insight into the way. Old Testament writers understood and viewed God. God was sovereign, supreme, monotheistic. There was no competition. An understanding of the devil, of Satan, of the mud-slinging slanderer doesn't develop in a robust way until the New Testament. In fact, in Genesis, what you have is a talking snake doesn't tell us who it is. Do you know when it is utterly clear about who it is? All the way over here in Revelation 12. The serpent, the dragon, the slanderer, the mudslinger, that's who it is. So in that world where God is supreme and alone, if something happened, either God allowed it, he permitted it, he said okay to it, or he did it himself. And you get the writer's understanding So bear that in mind when it says and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There are a couple of different ways in which that's presented. Maybe actually it's something more like this. You may have heard this illustration. It was very helpful to me that whether or not Pharaoh's or human hearts in today's world get hardened or soft depend on the texture of the heart. So Is a heart made of clay or is a heart made of wax? Shine the same light, the same sun, the same heat on clay, and it gets hard. Shine the same light, the same sun, the same heat on, on wax, and it gets soft. So maybe it's the texture of the heart, the humility of the soul, that determines whether or not those who are being called to repentance, as Pharaoh was, will grow harder or softer. Now the text, the last part of chapter 9, gives us the impression that people do repent, but that many, maybe most, do not repent. And then it stops. Then there's an interlude, just as there was in the seals, An interlude after number six. So in the seals, the interlude came for the sealing of God's people. Why does the interlude come in the trumpets? The answer is very simple. If this is what God is trying to do, that he's confronting the forces of evil who are trying to destroy humanity by trying to save any single person, any single sinner he can, then God wants your help and, mine. and that's when we come to witness. Over here, we're living our lives by the power, by the reality of prayer. But now that prayer takes on flesh and action in a life of witness. So it's in this section that we have the angel and the scroll. It is in this section that we have the two witnesses. And it is in this section that we finally have the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So, the angel and the scroll. John says in Revelation 10 that a mi- he saw a mighty angel, a cosmic angel, standing astride land and sea. And he has in his hand a little scroll. Now, some scholars say we're not sure that's the same scroll because. Here, it's a diminutive form of the word. It's as though you have a book and a booklet. But even in Revelation 10, it uses both words. I am compelled by those scholars who say, and I think they're right, they're saying the reason John refers to it a time or two as a little scroll is because the majesty and the size of the angel that stands astride earth and holds the same scroll but it's a little scroll. Now we're getting close to seeing the content of the scroll. But before we get quite there, John does have something to say about witness. And here's what he says about witness. He is told to consume the scroll, to ingest it, and he is told that when you eat it, when you consume it, it will be sweet in your mouth, but in your belly it will be bitter. Our pioneers, Adventist pioneers, saw that as the disappointment experience of 1844. Were they right? Yes, but that's not the only example. There are examples of this Everywhere there are people of faith in the Lamb. Think about it. So you heard the call of the Lamb. The invitation in which Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be as as wool because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he loved the world so much that he gave his son who did not come to the world to condemn it but to save it. And you heard that call. And knowing the condition of your heart and me knowing the condition of my heart, it was the sweetest call we'd ever heard come to Jesus, to receive all that he will pour into our lives, the grace, the forgiveness, the new life, the new hope, the growth, the maturation in faith, the deepening on the discipleship journey. What a profoundly sweet experience. In fact, it's so sweet that we say, I want to share that. want to share that with others tell them what Jesus has done for me and with all the joy that grows out of that kind of a precious experience with Jesus we start to share and you know what we often find I don't want to hear it stay away from me you some kind of religious nut I don't want to hear you're just a big I don't want to hear that and suddenly what was so profoundly sweet becomes bitter, can feel the bile in the back of our throats, the pain of something that is so profoundly sweet becoming deeply difficult. You think John didn't know that? In fact, one writer writing about this said there were so many martyrs in the first century church that there wouldn't have been a family to whom John wrote that didn't have at least one martyr. Think about that. The sweetness of their walk becoming bitter when it clashed with the realities of this kind of world. Jesus himself experienced it. Jesus who came offering love and joy and forgiveness, a new picture of God and a way to reconcile with God. And John, the writer in his gospel says, he came to his own and they would not receive him. Thus we see Jesus in the last week of his life, Sunday of the last week of his life, sitting astride a foal, on the Mount of Olives, viewing the city of Jerusalem before him, and his body is racked by sobs as he says, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings, and you would not. The sweetness has turned bitter. John is saying, When you witness in this kind of world, don't expect everybody to jump up and down and say yes. The sweetness of your experience will become very bitter in a world that doesn't like your God, who's buying into what's coming out of the mouth of all those warriors. So the two witnesses have a very... Mixed experience. Who are the two witnesses? Depends who you read. Historicists will put it at the French Revolution. Others will put it in other things. There is so much written about the two witnesses. Let me just say this. The Old Testament said you had to have two witnesses to confirm any story, any claim. After a lot of time reading about this, I'll just give you my take. You don't have to accept it think the two witnesses are the Word and the witness, the Scripture and the church, that those are the two who bear witness to the story of Jesus, to the the offer that God extends, and they are, we are the ones who will experience that kind of persecution which will erupt in the next two or three chapters. But we just keep telling the story, sharing what Jesus has done, and we do it in the context of prayer that's where we do it and then the seventh trumpet revelation 1115 says this the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Curious, is it not, that the breaking of the seals and the playing of the trumpets move through a similar trajectory, pause at the end of the sixth trumpet, an interlude, relevant to who the focus is, and then they both end in the kingdom of God. So where does that leave us today, you and me? How do we respond to this? Two ways. We respond to it with prayer. We say our lives will be saturated in prayer. A prayer that, that as Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, my all-time favorite quote on prayer, prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. We are formed by every morning, morning moments with Jesus, kneeling by our bed. Jesus, live in my life. Live in my heart. Deepen me. Grow me. Mature me. Let me align myself with you instead of trying to get you to align yourself with me. Keep me on your agenda. Let me live as your light in the world. Let me go on your errands today. Form me in the way you would have me formed. And that our lives are characterized day by day by communion with God. Do you know what that does? That keeps our heartbeats beating in sync with the tender God of Scripture. But then we go out and witness. In our prayer we say, keep my eyes open, my heart supple my mind clear on moments when I can share witness for you, when I can testify from Scripture, when I can share what you have done in my life. I'm not talking about weird things that used to be done at airports and stuff like that. I'm talking about asking God to keep your mind open and clear, your eyes able to see those moments that come where the Spirit nudges open a door, And you can say to someone, someone who may be caught in this, you know what? I've been there. And something made a profound difference in my life. Share it if you wish, but that's up to you. And when the Spirit opens that door, you share. You stand as a witness for the slaughtered lamb. Because that's the might of the lion and the methods of the lamb. And do you know what that will do to you? If this keeps your heart in sync with the tender God of Scripture, this will grow your courage for the coming apocalypse. You will become stronger and stronger as you share. And so if you say, "So, so what difference do the trumpets make, all that violence and mayhem, what difference do they make? Well, they make a difference because God is trying to save every last human he can. And he wants to use us to do it. And so this week, it calls on us to keep our hearts in tune with God and keep our lives formed by God so that wherever we go, we can live the life of the tender God of the Apocalypse. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.